Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. And welcome back to 5.40 a.m. Sports Talk New York. Mark Roseman, A.J. Carter, Ryan Sherman with you this Sunday evening, the last sports talk of the decade. Seems weird to say. And, uh, you know, in the 8 o'clock hour, maybe we'll talk about the decade's greats in each sport. Because there's been a lot of lists that have come out, and it's interesting. Some people have left off some guys that I think should be in there. Others have not. You know, normally, if you are a longtime listener, viewer of Sports Talk New York, I usually do these long introductions. But today... I'm going to switch up our introduction because I, I just felt it was right, and I want to play a little homage to one of my favorite shows, The Goldbergs, in this introduction. So he, here so it is. It'll be long. It'll be from The Goldbergs. No, it won't be that long. All right. Um, going to borrow something clock. from the hit TV show, The Goldbergs, to do so. So it was December 29th, 1980-something, and if you were flipping around the TV dial in New York during the local newscast when sports would come on, you would see a who's who of sports anchors. Warner Wolf, Len Berman, Bill Mazur, Sal Marciano, Jerry Gerard, the Albert family, all of them, and a man who made stops in Nashville and Boston prior to his arrival in the Big Apple, the man we called the Czar back in the day. It is a pleasure to welcome New York sports anchor Jerry Azar to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Czar. How you doing? Thank you, Mark. I mean, that's, when you just named all those great broadcasters back then, that's really an all-star team. Absolutely, and that's, that's what... That's like a golden age. Yeah, and that's, you know, if you do watch the Goldbergs, they talk about different things, whether it be movies or popular culture, and that's why I wanted to do that, because, you know, that was, I guess that is our wheelhouse. AJ and I, that's, you know, back in the day when we only had the five or six channels, you would Which be I remember flipping black through. and white television. But you remember sitting by the radio and listening right. to FDR, so let's... <laughs> Fireside <laughs> chat. Right. Uh, so for our, our younger listeners, long before there was the endless cable TV stations, ESPN, SNY, yes, Major League Baseball, NHL Network, NFL Network, NBA, Fox Sports, all of that stuff, sports junkies like AJ and myself would time the local newscast to try and flip to CBS 2, NBC 4, ABC 7 during the 6 p.m. and 11 p.m. news to catch each sportscaster. What was it like to be part of that amazing sportscast you know, landscape at that time in history? Extremely competitive. <laughs> and, you know, we, like I say, it, back then you had all these great people, and the news stations themselves were extremely competitive with the ratings and everything, and they were star-laden. And back then, uh, I, I can speak for, I'm going to speak for WABC Channel 7. You had all-star anchors, extremely talented people, and they were backed up. And then you had the star reporters and very deep bench, the videographers, the technicians. And it was like that at all the stations. I mean, it was really, it was an honor to work for them. You know, I mentioned your stops along the way to New York, one of which was Nashville. And interestingly enough, your time in Nashville from 79 to 81 coincided when the Nashville Sounds were the Yankees' double-A affiliate. They had some pretty good players on that team, Don Mattingly, Willie McGee, Steve Balboni, Otis Nixon, and Buck Showalter. We're somewhat jaded and spoiled here in New York as we have two of every major league sports teams in each sport. Um, Major League Baseball is looking to eliminate some of the minor league affiliate teams. What did the sounds mean to Nashville when you were covering them? It was, they did it first class. They had a guy there, Larry Schmidt, who later on became involved with the Texas Rangers, and it was Greer Stadium. 
And uh, also one of the owners was part of the Oak Ridge Boys, Richard Sturban. That was a beautiful stadium. It was clean, great food, great atmosphere. And then you're affiliated with the Yankees. And you, those guys, you obviously did your homework, went back there, and a lot of great players came through there. And uh, it was fun to cover them. Another guy that was there that was known for always getting the big hit with the bases loaded was Pat Tabler. Oh, he was on that team also. Right. It's very interesting because your first interaction with Yankee owner George Steinbrenner actually happened in spring training, April of 81. You're trying to get some interviews from the Yankees about an upcoming April 16th game at, you mentioned, Herschel Greer Stadium between the Yankees and the Sounds. Can you tell our audience how that interaction went and how that actually might have helped you gain some national attention that might have paved the road for you to get here in New York? Well, I had interviewed George a couple of times before when he came to Nashville in just an excellent rapport. Uh, this day we were told because we're doing a special, there was going to be a game, the Yankees were going to come and take on the Sounds. We were going to go down there and do some pre-production and pre-interviews. So we go down there and nobody's talking. We can't get any of the Yankees to talk. So, you know, George is always describing his team of those are my boys, those are my kids and everything. So I went in and I told George, I said, we're having some problem with your children. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, what I did not know is that prior to my comment about that, Reggie Jackson had pulled a calf muscle. And, you know, George, a super patriot, that was the day back in 81 when President Reagan was shot. So you put those elements together, and I'm saying uh, we had some problem with your children, and George went crazy and told me, get my out of there. <laughs> he said, I embarrassed him in front of the writers from New York. The game was canceled, and that was it. And I said, uh-oh, what did I step into? But uh, also you have to know when uh, opportunity knocks. So uh, the national paper starts sniffing around, but I'm in Florida. Well, they want to do a, a big article on me. So I arranged for them to uh, get into my apartment in Nashville so they could get a picture. And then you get a big headline that goes, Steinbrenner at odds with Azar. And uh, I played it down. I said, you know, I caught George at a bad time. Not a good question. But he he said he was going to cancel that game. I said, you know, I'm in trouble. But it turned out uh, it worked out where they – did play the game, and I, George was down there, and everybody said, go, go, Azar, you're afraid. I went down there, shook hands, and uh, that was great. And, you know, I have always, to this today, been a super big fan of George Steinbrenner, and uh, uh, you'll find people that cover the Yankees as beat writers and everything. We love George. We miss George, and if he really deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And I wish uh, someone could speak. I could speak to that Veterans Committee. Wish he could have got in before he passed. But it's not as much fun covering baseball or sports without the boss. So, so to give our audience a little peek into the world of, of broadcast journalism and ratings and things like that. Now, today you have every newspaper and, and every outlet, whether it's ESPN, has a media writer, somebody who covers the media. Back in 1980s, that wasn't true. Stan Nobody, Isaacs. Well, well, Stan Isaacs, but right. it, it wasn't even, I don't even know if was Stan was doing week. it by then. It was once yeah. a week. But it really wasn't done. So here you come, you got something, and you suddenly become the story. Was this something the station loved, promoted, or get better ratings? Or did you feel uncomfortable as a journalist to have you suddenly become the story? Uh, you know, when you, t- <laughs> you know, you know, egos in broadcasting, when you become the center of attention, that's never a bad thing. And what I did, you know, the station said, you know, it got fixed in a hurry. Yeah. Uh, but what it is is I uh, 
took that, that headline from that paper and a tape and got it off to WABC. So I, it's, you sense a chance to promote yourself in something, and that's when I first came under the uh, attention of WABC Channel 7 New York. You know, it's also interesting because while you're in Nashville, you also developed your style as part reporter and part entertainer, which really up until that point, most sportscasters were not. For example, you put a challenge out there stating that you could beat any pregnant woman in Nashville. In no, basketball. they didn't have to be pregnant. <laughs> oh, no, they it didn't? Was, it was just a, it was a woman. It was a... a anyway, all right. So, so you did a Bobby Riggs. take off on the Bobby Riggs, right. Billie Jean King okay. thing around that time, yeah. a battle of the sexes. It, you know, the station wanted to do it for promotion. Right. So you challenged any woman in basketball, billiards, bowling, or racquetball, and on the line was a nice... Dinner, but you actually did lose in billiards, and that dinner didn't go so well, right? Well, the woman was a little bit, let's say, <laughs> a rougher edge type of person than I was used to meeting with the black leather jacket and uh, whatever have you, and At home very rough house, looking. So we went to this nice restaurant, and she's stealing the silverware. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I love that story. So, but the, the interesting thing is, you know, do you think you'd be able to do that in today's political correct world, or would there be some women's group saying that that's sexist and you know, and start boycotting the station? Uh, you couldn't get away with a lot of that stuff today because there's not as much humor out there today, either from the Me Too movement or whatever. A lot of times, you know, some of this stuff is is justified, and then many times you can overshoot your mark. So I don't know. You know, I think I have enough uh, showbiz in me and uh, sensitivity in me. How far to go with that? But it's you still be done. But uh, it could be fun. So it's interesting because from Nashville you make a brief stop over in Boston and then on to New York. And I, I read an article where you said to say I was ill prepared emotionally and culturally for New York would be an understatement. So looking back at it, you went from the number 140th market, Indiana to 29 in Nashville, to the nation's number one rated station in a span of two and a half years. So how could it, how would it have been even possible for anyone to be prepared for that? And what was the biggest obstacle you had to face in the New York market at first? Uh, the, the thing is, is like I say, here's what it is. It, it's not just being, uh, what we said, you said emotionally ill-prepared and culturally. It, you have to have time to adjust to this. And what I is, I was very, very naive and think, well, talent's enough. I did it on my own. I don't need any help. Those are such major mistakes you can make. And also, I had not researched how much uh, turmoil there had been in the sports office of WABC ever since Warner Wolf left. And so I go in there, and there's already been a lot of drama going on, which I'm not aware of. And... Um, I, like I said, I, sh I should have been more prepared. And I always thought, hey, you know, I've done it on my own. I can do it on my own. And whenever I've spoken to, at universities and whatever groups, I just tell them, never be ashamed to accept help from people and never think you don't need help. Everyone needs help along the way. And it's also interesting to note, and I'm sure many people don't know this, but before it became live with Regis and Kathy Lee, Regis had a morning show here in New York which you were actually supposed to be a big part of. What happened with that? Okay, you know, this is when Regis had pretty much run out of chances himself. He had just uh, left NBC, so he comes over and they create a morning show. 
And I was new there, and they said, we want you to be part of this show with Regis. So I went and talked to Regis, and he said, okay, let me know what goes on. Well, they sent me to some consultants who said, what we want you to do, and these people had been consultants for Good Morning America. Okay, what do you want from me? Well, what we want you to do is take icing and hockey and make it funny. Excuse me? <laughs> we want you to take icing and hockey and make it funny. You guys, you guys got any help for me on that one? <laughs> uh, you know, okay. the Flyers try it with gritty, and it doesn't really work either. But, yeah, no, icing's not funny. <laughs> so I go to Regis, and I said, Regis, I'm new here. This is your show. I, I don't want to bomb. I said, this is what I was told. He goes, hey. He's, he said something to the extent of F the consultants. You and I will work this out. Okay. So I said, his show. So I, the consultants wanted to get back to me. I didn't. They went and told my general manager that Azar was giving them the runaround. I got called up, and he, he's looking at the, hey, you're just out of Nashville. You, know, you were in Boston for a cup of coffee. And from that day on, that general manager turned against me. And then he goes, you're off the Regis show. Wow. And that was that. So I never even got on it. Yeah, but you were up for the job. Could you imagine? I mean, and that well, was a long-running show for quite a while. And at the same time, you were also up for the Jets' play-by-play announcing job. And that kind of fell through because of the Regis job, correct? Uh, no. Well, yes, it goes back to that because uh, I needed permission. WABC Radio wanted me to do it. Uh, Mark Mason approached me that because I was getting up sometimes in the mornings, coming in, helping them out. And he goes, we'd like you to be the Jets play-by-play guys. I've never done play-by-play. We don't care. You're the czar. Okay. So I said, let me get permission from my general manager. General manager said, no, goodbye Jets job. Unbelievable. Uh, it's such a weird series of events that, that lead to eventually you not being here in New York. But it's strange. But while you're here in New York, the New York Mets start turning things around under Davey Johnson. Daryl and Doc are just starting out. What do you remember about that clubhouse and covering that team? Just a great team, leaders, Keith Hernandez, Gary Carter. You go up and down the line that they had. Uh, one of my favorite memories, and I want, when they did that 30 for 30, Doc and Daryl, uh, Judd Apatow did that. I was trying to get a hold of him because there's a piece of tape that they would have loved to have had. When Dwight Gooden first came up, they were doing everything to protect him. They said, no one-on-one interviews with Doc. Okay, that's what we're doing. Well, it just so happened that one day he pitched and then hit a home run off Lee Tunnel of the Pirates. Well, we, you got to get him. I can't get him. So I had you know, been friends with Straub. When I say friends, I had covered Daryl probably for a year before that. So I go and give the Channel 7 microphone and logo to Daryl Strawberry. And then Daryl goes and does the interview with Doc. And uh, Daryl asks him about the home run. And I always remember this line. He just says, if they hang it, I'll bang it. <laughs> Great piece. Of, if you look at this tape, such innocence from back then. Both of them with everything ahead of them. It, it's sad, but it's a good memory, too, that we had a little fun with it. So what was the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back that eventually led you away from ABC? Uh, it is a thing that's happened to me many times in my career. And it, it's, it's really, uh, the people that hire me love me. They then are issued out. They're fired. New people come in, and there's three ways they can go with this. They can like me, too. They can just be ambivalent, or they don't like me. And unfortunately, too many times, they did not like me. But here's where a fault of mine came. I was offered a contract after uh, my contract expired, 
But I was told, always don't, never accept the first deal. You know, guess what? So I turned it down. It was for minimal money. But, and it had a one-year option. means they could get me after one year. So I just said, no, guess what? After another offer never came. And the big mistake I made, and to this day rue that mistake, is I choked. I mean, I, uh, after a couple of months, I left New York instead of staying here, where I was really well-known. And uh, as they say, I, 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 pay for, I still pay for that move today. You, know, you, you talk about your style and, and part reporter, part entertainer, <clears throat> and you look at the different news stations in New York, especially at that time, that Eyewitness News Channel 7 had a particular flavor to it whether somebody, you know, derogatorily called it happy news, but it was a different personality. Do you think things would have been different had you gone, first of all, you would fit in at all at other stations in New York, and how different do you think your career would have been if you'd ended up, say, at, at Channel 2, Channel 4, cha you know, Channel 5, whoever was doing Channel 11 doing news those days? Well, you have to remember when you opened this interview with the people that they had on yeah. board. So there's not very many openings. Yeah. Right. Uh, so they were pretty much covered, and the, the you know the cupboard was well stocked. And sometimes, if you're a, a very colorful, controversial guy, let's say a, a so-called number one type guy, well, they've already got a number one guy, and so you don't really fit in there. Yeah. So it's interesting. So you were no longer on in New York. And, you know, uh, winter breaks, I used to go down to Florida with my parents. And, you know, I'm flipping through, and, uh, you know, I come across, you know, WPLG, Channel 10 Miami, and there you are. And I was, like, so pumped up. I, was, I finally get to see you again. Um, and, and it's interesting because it, that's a pretty nice, you know, sports land uh, landscape, too. You got the, the Dolphins. You have one of our sponsors' favorite teams, the University of Miami Hurricanes. You got the Heat, and they were just well, getting the franchise. They didn't really have the Heat at that point. Well, that's exactly. The, the Heat weren't there yet. This yeah. was a two-horse town. You just two, had right. the Dolphins, right. and you had UM. Right. And, then, and that's when UM was emerging. You know, they had won the national championship. I just watched that wonderful Billy Corbin thing again, the yeah. U. They had won a national championship with Howard Schnellenberger. Now Jimmy was there, Jimmy Johnson. Okay. What a colorful t Oh, God, they were so much fun. So It was good because, I had, like you said, I had a built-in audience. Right. I, I go down there, <laughs> and no there's birds, people yeah. who remember me from New York and everything, so I'm not really like a new guy down there. Right, and, and then there was a little, you know, Ann Bishop, who's a longtime anchor, similar to Carolyn Silver here on News 12. Yeah. She's the Carolyn Silver of Channel yeah, 10. So. She's there forever. I remember, like, when I was 8, she was there, and when I was in 20, <laughs> she was still there. And it was a little conflict there, and you eventually moved on from there. But Miami's loss was our gain, as once again, in the late 90s and early 2000s, at, you end up at Michael Bloomberg's WBBR in New York, serving as a sports uh, morning anchor, as well as doing celebrity interviews, including film greats and some from the political arena. And it's strange, but for, for me, even though you're from Indiana, I just see you as the New York guy, and I think you're at your best when you're in New York. And Everywhere I, I've been, even when I was in Indiana... They've always thought I was a New York guy. Yeah, and, and, and really for me, I think those years at Bloomberg was you at your best. And when I'm, when I'm thinking about it, I'm saying, you know, why are you not doing that now as a podcast? Because you at your best was interview, doing interviews and not only athletes but celebrities, you know, politicians. Why, especially now with the landscape of podcasts, why are you not doing something like that today? Well, we may be working on it. You know, it's like this. My strength has always been in front of the camera. Tech-wise, I need a lot of help. 
need some people to put that together. You put us together, I mean, you, you know this. The best relationship in the world, if you've got a producer or a technician who takes care of a certain amount of things, you take care of others, and you guys are buddies, you're going to do good business. And just right now, I just have that on-camera type thing and haven't been able to put that other part together. Everybody talks to me about this and doing this. And that was the – you talk, you know, when you've been knocked down from New York and you get knocked down and you're in Buffalo and it's snowing on July 4th and everything, and then you finally get a chance, which I will always owe Mike Bloomberg, to come back and then get to do those celebrity interviews, which I've always wanted to do. And that was – that was that was one of the high points. So, have you ever thought about or tried talk radio, sports talk radio? Again, yes. You know, you can try and follow up certain leads that you get, but um, like I've, I've always said, it's like the line that uh, Gordon Gecko gives Bud Fox in Wall Street: "If you're not inside, you're outside." So once you're on that outside, it's tough to get back inside, and you know. Even though I'm just now turning 40, it's well, maybe not. <laughs> right. But anyway, you get to a certain age, and you be, you've gone beyond a grizzled veteran. But so, uh, I would love to. And, you know, I, I still got, I, you know, I got my pipes. I got the energy. It's just, uh, it, it's luck. I've had a couple interviews. It's just trying to nail it down. So you're here in New York now, right, in the New yes, York so, area. Yes. So you get to see what goes on, whether it be on cable or between ESPN and FAN and the various sportscasters. What do you make of today's landscape? Is there someone that you particularly like and, and think gets the New York landscape? What I do, I'll tell you a basic morning for myself. You know, I'll watch Mike Greenberg, great communicator, with Get Up, Flip Over, watch Skip for a while. Uh, I think Colin Cowherd is ex exceptional at what he does. And then at PTI, I always love with Mike and Tony, Mike Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser. That's, I, I watch a lot of things. What I do watch through all of this, and I realize the uh, boomers and those were all wired differently than millennials and everything, is that the, uh, the decibel level. You know, it used to be uh, enthusiasm and animation all helps with talent. And somewhere along the line, screaming came in. And not everybody has talent, but everybody can scream. <laughs> like I say, I may, I may not be wired properly. I'm not, I don't know, have access to research where people like all that static and loudness. You get four or five people, a lot of them, like I say, not professional broadcasters, but athletes competing, and it just goes up and up and up to surpassing Banshee level. And uh, I, I find I, I can't pick up a lot of the message, and I, they lose me. I guess you're not a Stephen A. Smith fan, then. <laughs> uh, Stephen A. has done well. <laughs> uh, I, I had to say, I, I said, you know, Dr. Frankenstein gave his monster eternal life. ESPN gave theirs 10 mil a year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, are you also surprised at how important having a social media presence is in these days for, you know, the sports journalist? Oh, yeah. I see all that, of course. You just, uh, well, just like checking out what you guys are doing here, all these various outlets and chances to pick it up and everything. You know, you have to bring uh, so many people under the tent that you can try and get them all in. So that, that's, again, a change in the landscape, but you have to survive. 
So in the past, when we've had sportscasters on, we have a few questions we love to ask them. So we want to close out this segment with those questions for you. So firstly, if you had a time machine and you could go back to cover any sporting event ever, what would it be? Uh, Ali Frazier, March 1971, the fight of the century and everything, both were undefeated. That would be it. Nice. Uh, I was very fortunate enough when I was in Nashville uh, to get to host Muhammad Ali Day at Meharry Medical College. And that is one of the big thrills of my life, uh, to work with Ali and get to know him. It was right before the Larry Holmes fight. So uh, Ali Frazier won. A lot of people tell you that's the one. Nice. Same time machine you could go back and interview any athlete ever. Who would it be? Well, I've interviewed uh, a lot of them, and most of the ones are the same. As as far as an athlete, right, right now nothing comes to mind right now. All right. Secondly, of all the people you've had the opportunity to interview, who was the absolute best interview that you had? Uh, Reggie Jackson is great. I I always enjoyed uh, Reggie Jackson. And conversely, who was the worst? Uh, Serena Williams almost got me fired. (laughs) (laughs) Why? What what went wrong with that? Uh, The thing was, uh, I'm working at Bloomberg, and Serena's doing a very nice thing in the morning. She's doing something for the Ronald McDonald House, but she had to get up at like 6 o'clock in the morning. I mean, she had to do the interview at 6. I don't know what time she got up. And I was already doing the graveyard shift and overnight. So anyway, we're doing Serena, and Serena is extremely uncooperative. She is surly. And, and you, you know when it's going on, how it's going, and you're, you know, you're doing your best to get out of it. Well, my bosses, one of my bosses, not Mike Bloomberg, but someone else, picked up on that and thought it was me kicking off Serena. And at the end of that interview, I said, by the way, uh, we did this interview at 6 o'clock at six o'clock in the morning with Serena. But he thought it was my fault, and uh, I almost got fired because Serena was in a bad mood that morning. So you mentioned Mike Bloomberg. What type of relationship experience did you have with him as, at WVVR? Mike hired me directly. I came in. I was brought in once to meet the news director, Bob Leveroni, and then he brought me back to meet Mike. And uh, throughout my entire career, through force of will, humor, energy, whatever, with consultants, with news directors, with general managers, I was always pretty much able to control the narrative and control the interview. With Mike, I could not. Uh, What I've noticed sometimes with uh, billionaires, you know, attention span is fleeting. But as far as working with Mike, generous, humorous, humane, just a great guy. We've done emails throughout the years in contact. Uh, when Mike left to become mayor, that's when my career pretty much started, uh, was over at Bloomberg. When Mike was there, I was doing extremely well. And had Mike not gone for a third term, I'd probably still do I might be finishing up there right now instead of being gone for a while. Mike, I, and I, if I have a chance to work for Mike's campaign, I will. So that being said, if someone had told you back in the 80s or you know, late 90s that Donald Trump would be president and Mike Bloomberg would be running for president, what do you think you would have said? Uh, probably what everyone else said. You know, if you look at Trump himself, for the longest time, he can't believe he's president. <laughs> He'll go out there, can you believe? I- I'm president. I'm president. He doesn't believe it. But, you know, Donald, he, he the same, I have a saying. If you really, and I interviewed Donald many, many, many times, and it, it, 
being president to Donald Trump is a step down from being Donald Trump. <laughs> and that's where a lot of this goes. Why isn't he presidential? That's because he's Donald Trump first. That's a good way Why does he have to answer everybody back? Why? He's Donald Trump first. That is a great answer. Um, you know, that's the other thing. So all these interviews that you've done over the year, do you have them archived somewhere? Because that, that's another outlet because, you know, people love to go back and listen, you know, whether it be on YouTube or whether it be on SoundCloud or iTunes, just a compilation of, because you've interviewed hundreds of thousands of people's, people over the years. I have, yes, I've got a lot of stuff that are on VHS, which I'm going to have to have converted you know, I've moved around a lot, so I'm going to have to get one of those machines that converted to DVD or whatever. You can go and have it done with your computer. I haven't done a lot of that yet. But I've got some of my favorites. One time, I have to tell you, uh, in a long career, the only time I felt that I really had made it, and it was such for a brief, brief time, I was interviewing Charlton Heston. And I guess when I was six years old, the first movie my parents ever took me to was the Ten Commandments. Not long after that, I broke most of them, but that's another story. <laughs> but uh, here I am, and I'm sitting there, and for and getting along great. We're talking about Northwestern football, everything. And just for a brief second, I, I warped out. And so I'm sitting here with Moses, Judah Ben-Hur, El Cid, Andrew Jackson, you know, and the, the Taylor from Planet of the Apes. And I said, you know, I made it. And it was very brief, and that was it. But I, it's one of my favorite all-time interviews, and I got it there. He did it for me. I said, you know, anytime there's a Charlton Heston interview, you have to do this. Give us the line from Planet of the Apes. And he says, get your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. And I would play that constantly in the Bloomberg newsroom, and everyone loved it. Unbelievable. Listen, uh, you know, we're not ABC. Uh, AJ's going to Florida for two months as an empty right. seat. <laughs> Anytime you want to take a ride out to Long Island, you are welcome to sit in here. Uh, just, you know, to, to get a demo tape again out there, because we would love hey, to have you. Uh, I'm there. You need me? <laughs> Let me know. Any, I'll find my way out. You have an open invitation for sure. It, you know, you, again, like, That'd be great. Mark, just let me know. I'll, I'll come in there. And if you ever need some help, I'm available. I'll never I, come back. I, I don't do floors and walls anymore. I can't bend like I used to. But for you, I make a deal. You gotta, <laughs> AJ seats, not even it's cold yet, and we've got it replaced. I'm, I'm gone. <laughs> I love it. Jerry, thanks. When so I learn to spell AJ, I will come out and help. <laughs> All right, Jerry, thanks so much for your thanks, time. Guys. More importantly, okay. thanks for, for hours and hours of entertainment in the 80s and 90s. A big thrill for us I to have you. I can get some now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> thanks so much, Jerry. We All right, really guys, appreciate anytime. It. You got it. Jerry Azar, the czar.